It's Friday, June 26th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The country is experiencing a coronavirus surge, and it's everywhere. This past week, the U.S. hit its highest single day of new coronavirus cases since April. Texas Governor Greg Abbott also announced that due to a rise in cases, the state will pause any further phases to reopen. Furthermore, the increases in cases are skewing younger. Sam Baker, healthcare editor at Axios, joins us for the rise in coronavirus cases. Next, vote by mail has been getting a lot of scrutiny lately as President Trump and Attorney General Barr have both said it will lead to a huge amount of fraud. Both said that foreign countries could print up tens of thousands of counterfeit ballots, despite experts saying that is not true. And despite partisan fears, research says that no party gains an advantage. Daryl West, director of governance studies at the Brookings Institution, joins us for more about mail-in voting. Finally, everything that makes a dive bar great makes them especially vulnerable to COVID-19. Dark interiors and busy atmospheres might lend itself to a good time, but it makes it hard to social distance and keep the air clean. The big question is, are patrons ready to go back? Nick Mancall Battelle, reporter at Eater, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. In other areas of the country, we're now seeing a disturbing surge of infections that looks like it's a combination, but one of the things is an increase in community spread. And that's something that I'm really quite concerned about. Joining us now is Sam Baker, healthcare editor at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Sam. Thanks for having me. Not very good news with regards to coronavirus. We're having another surge and it's very real and it's everywhere. Case in point, right now, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has announced that the state's reopening has been halted. Any further phases to reopen Texas have been stopped right now. Businesses that are already open and things that are already underway can remain, but any new things are being halted. We also had the highest single day of new coronavirus cases earlier in this week, breaking an April record. We had over 45,000 cases in a single day. This is starting to creep up all over the place again. Sam, tell us some more about it, please. So we've been doing a map at at Axios.com every week, every Thursday. We track how many new cases have appeared in each state over the preceding week. This week is definitely the worst. It is the grimmest we've seen over the past eight weeks. We count 26 states with statistically significant increases in cases. Some of those are really huge increases. You mentioned Texas as an incredibly concerning case. Arizona's in a similar boat. Florida's in a similar boat. And California also is not doing very well. Right. And, you know, just to bolster some of that, 77% in Arizona, new cases are up. 75% in Michigan, 70% in Texas, 66% in Florida. And California, 47%. So these cases are all going up. You know, a lot of people always point to testing. You know, oh, we're finding out that there's more cases because we're doing more testing. But that's not necessarily the case. It does seem that more people are just getting it right now. We are doing more testing, and that is identifying more cases. And that's a good thing, unequivocally, that we're finding those cases. But that does not explain increases of this magnitude. You know, if it was just testing, you probably wouldn't see your hospitalizations go up that much, right? Because if you're sick, you need to go to the hospital whether you get a test or not. The percentage of all tests that come back positive is going up, which is a sign that not only are you doing more testing, but the outbreak is actually getting worse. As much as it would be great if this increase was only attributable to testing, that's just not the case. Obviously, we know how the virus affects older people and people with a lot of comorbidities. 
get it a lot worse. And early on, these were the case. Older people were getting it more, people in nursing homes. But now it's starting to trend down. People in their 20s, 30s, and 40s are starting to be affected by this. We hope because the virus tends to be more lethal to older people that because younger people are getting it now, maybe a smaller percentage of these people will die. But, you know, the virus can still kill you even if you're young, even if you're healthy. It can still do a whole bunch of lasting damage to various parts of your body, to your immune system, your lungs, even your heart. So, you know, it's still very serious, but hopefully the death rate will be a little bit lower with younger people getting it. So why are more people getting it? A lot of people are pointing to the fact that since we are reopening a number of states and bars and restaurants and stores have started to reopen, a lot of people are pointing to that. Is that mostly why? Yeah, I think it's really hard to ignore that correlation. These cases started going up, not right away once places started to reopen, but as places reopened a little bit more, as you've seen President Trump sort of put a greater and greater and greater emphasis on the economy and getting back to work. A lot of people have had to go back to work. That sure seems like the culprit. And one of the interesting things, too, is we look at a lot of the numbers. Obviously, the testing helps, but people always point to hospitalizations. Hospitalizations are going up in a lot of states, which is concerning, and hospital beds are filling up. One of the interesting things that I saw is that still, even though younger people are getting it, they're getting sick enough to be hospitalized, although the good thing is not as sick as other people where they would need intensive care treatment, breathing machines and whatnot, but they are still filling up the hospitals. When the whole country locks down, right, the fear was so many people are going to get it that it's going to overwhelm the healthcare system. And then we're going to have to choose who lives and who dies. And we don't want that. So we did this national lockdown. We've come out of that now. And hospitals are starting to become overrun in some part of Texas. It's not every hospital. It's not every bed. But some hospitals in some parts of that state are running out of at least ICU beds. The hospitals themselves are starting to reach capacity. This is exactly what we were afraid of at the beginning. And now it's happening. Do you think we're going to start seeing more states take the road that Texas has taken and start rolling back some things or at least limiting? I think actually we saw it in uh, California already. Disneyland was set to reopen middle of July. They scaled that back because they haven't gotten the guidance from the governor yet. Uh, do you think we're going to start seeing more of this? Especially we'll see more of it from really large employers and public facing sort of institutions like Disneyland, where first of all, they don't want all of their staff to get the coronavirus and they don't want to be associated with being the vector that caused a big outbreak in California or the people traveled in California and took it back home. But there's a real debate or a lot of skepticism, I should say, among public health officials and experts about how effectively you can sort of put the toothpaste back in the tube once you've said that you're reopening and how right. much people will really listen to that, especially since people didn't really listen to it the first time. Sam Baker, healthcare editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And our way of resolving it is to have an election. But when, when, when governments, state governments start adopting uh, these practices like mail-in ballots, open the floodgates of potential fraud. Joining us now is Daryl West, Director of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. Thanks for joining us, Daryl. Thank you. Nice to be with you. wanted to talk about vote by mail. It's been getting a lot of 
awareness lately. Uh, the president and the attorney general, Bill Barr, both have said that mail-in voting will lead to fraud. I think it was Bill Barr that was on Fox News and said that a foreign country could print up tens of thousands of counterfeit ballots and it would be very hard for us to detect which was the right one and which was the wrong ballot. But that doesn't really pan out according to what a lot of experts say. They actually say big widespread voter fraud by mail-in ballots is pretty hard to do. Daryl, tell us a little bit about this. It is hard to engage in mail ballot fraud on a a widespread uh, basis because there are a lot of protections that are uh, built in. I mean, for example, those in the military have been uh, voting by mail for years. There have been almost no problems associated with uh, that. There have been a number of states, like Oregon has been using this for a number of elections. Uh, They have not had any uh, problems. There have been uh, studies of this, and we just simply haven't found a lot of evidence that there is a problem in this area. Tell us about what kinds of mail balloting we have, because there's the absentee ballots, which I know a lot of people are familiar with, and then universal vote by mail. What's the difference between those? In the case of absentee balloting, uh, people, if they're going to be traveling or if just somehow they're not able to vote in person, they can request an absentee ballot from their local board of elections. In some states, you have to have a real reason to do it. Other states have what's called no excuse absentee voting. So you just request it and you get it. In the case of universal vote by mail, those are states like Oregon that just basically everybody is uh, voting by mail. And so everybody gets uh, a ballot in the uh, mail. But it's not really possible for a foreign country to counterfeit ballots and uh, send them out. Basically, either people have to request them and they get sent directly to your mailbox, or in the case of the states that have universal voting, basically they are mailing out to the registered voters in those states. As with everything, (laughs) this whole kind of topic now has kind of had this partisan twist to it. But according to some of the research, there really is no party that gains an advantage from mail-in voting. There's been extensive analysis, both on the fraud issue as well as whether mail balloting benefits uh, Republicans or uh, Democrats. And the research basically shows there's not a net partisan gain to either side. And in fact, I mean, there have been recent elections. There's a 2020 uh, California special election for uh, Congress where the Republicans uh, captured that seat and was a seat that previously had been held by a Democrat. And they did that by getting out the vote and making sure their voters had access to absentee ballots. Ballots. Uh, so where one party does well, it's often because they make an effort on the absentee uh, ballot side, but there really is no evidence that one side or the other benefits from this uh, type of approach. What might be the motivation then for the president and the attorney general, Bill Barr, to start on this line to say that there's going to be widespread voter fraud if we go with increased mail-in voting? Trump has been making a lot of erroneous claims about mail balloting, but it seems like he's just trying to delegitimize the whole process and sow a lot of voter distrust in the system. As a outsider type of a candidate, what he did in 2016, he thinks that that will help him in 2020. I think also, like right now, the polls move very much in favor of Joe Biden. Trump is worried that he's going to lose, and he wants an excuse if he loses. And if he loses, he will say they stole the election from me. So that may make him feel good, but it's not responsible for a president to be casting doubt on the way the system operates in the absence of evidence to support his claims. 
let's talk a little bit more about these anti-fraud protections because there's really a lot that goes into making these mail-in ballots pretty legitimate and they'll check your address, they'll check your signature. There's a lot of different things that they're doing to make sure it's actually you that's voting. Some of the critics make it sound like you can just rent a photocopy machine and run off hundreds or thousands of these and distribute them to your friends. That's not how the process works. And anybody who voted through that mechanism, the local election authorities would eliminate their uh, vote because it would just be so obviously a fake. I mean, the way the process operates is the local board of election rents the elections. They have the list of registered voters. If you want an absentee ballot, you have to write to that board of election. They will send the absentee ballot after they've certified that you are a legitimate voter directly to your mail address. So it's sent to you. It's not sent to anyone else. You have to fill it out. You send it back to the board of elections. They can check for signatures if they want. I mean, there's lots of protections that are built in to prevent election fraud. And by and large, in the places that have used this, neither Republicans nor Democrats have been making fraud charges. Trump makes these claims, but there really is not evidence on the ground that this has been a big problem. Daryl West, Director of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So these businesses are really struggling, even in comparison to other restaurants and bars around them who maybe can pivot to provide to-go cocktails due to loosened regulations in some cities. Dive bars can't really do that. Joining us now is Nick Mancall Battelle, reporter at Eater. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Thanks for having me. As the country starts to open up, one of my favorite types of places to go to, the dive bar, is particularly vulnerable to COVID-19. You know, we've done stories about how transmission happens. They happen in especially places with poor ventilation, let's say, uh, person-to-person contact for extended periods of time. And those are some of the things that you get at a dive bar, some of the things that you make them even better, really. You know, you like these dark places that, you know, when they're filled to the gills, there's just action happening and drinks flowing. Lots of good people watching. These are some things that really make the dive bars special, but it's also that thing that makes them vulnerable to COVID-19. Nick, tell us a little bit about it. You spoke to a few bar owners and their experience throughout all of this. People really love going to rowdy dive bars because they are small and they're notoriously dirty. And even if that stereotype isn't exactly true for most places, it still gives them a reputation that maybe makes customers a little bit wary about going in the COVID era. You know, they tend to do a lot of business at the bar as opposed to tables. So it's kind of hard to socially distance there. They deal in cash, which has become really taboo. They do things that are normally really cute and fun, like they serve communal snacks. And obviously that can't happen now. So these businesses are really struggling, even in comparison to other restaurants and bars around them who maybe can pivot to provide to-go cocktails due to loosened regulations in some cities, dive bars can't really do that, either because they don't serve mixed drinks or they're not known for that. And unless a customer is going to go out of their way to throw a few dollars to a dive bar, they're probably not going to order a beer to go. So there are not a lot of options for these owners, even the ones who are sort of trying to work with the regulations in their cities because customers just aren't coming for that. So let's talk about some of those regulations, because as things started to open up, One of the rules in a lot of places was you had to serve food if you were going to also serve drinks. So right away, a lot of these drinks only bars 
were at a disadvantage and they were making partnerships with restaurants or, or something else so that they could do both. Regulations are differing everywhere and they're changing all the time, which is making it really hard for some of these owners. But yeah, Susan Carnell, who owns the living room in L.A., partnered with a soul food restaurant next door or was planning to uh, as a few weeks ago to set up in their parking lot and serve food and drinks. And then just recently, L.A. announced she no longer has to do that. So now she's refiguring. And Mark Connell, who owns Botanica in New York, was getting around a rule that required to-go drinks there to be accompanied by food. So he was just throwing in a bag of chips just to get around that arbitrary rule. What about bartenders? I know a lot of business owners, bar owners are concerned for their staff, obviously, as well. They want them to be safe, but they also want them to make money. And if people aren't really turning out, that's a difficult thing to really go back to. Some owners have gotten loans. Uh, a lot of them have gotten PPP loans, which have to go for the most part to employees, even though that's shifting as well. So some of them have been able to bring back staff in some capacity, but that also relies on the willingness of the bartenders to come back at all. And in some cases, that's not a problem. In, in New York, for example, Mark said his bartenders at Botanica would be happy to come back. You know, they are done being quarantined. They want to work. But out in LA at the living room, the situation is totally different. You know, the staffers are really cautious. Beyond this, you spoke about the business loans and all that. Costs are going up everywhere. So some of the great things about dive bars are some of the really cheap drink specials. And you talk about a place in Philadelphia that had a shot and a beer combo for $4. And these prices aren't necessarily sustainable that much anymore, depending on what the comeback is like. Yeah, a lot of these businesses were already struggling to survive in major cities. You know, dive bars have been disappearing for years, and this is really just exacerbating that. So Bob and Barbara's, a great bar in Philadelphia, has been known forever for serving the special. Elsewhere, it's known as the citywide special, which is a shot and a beer. It's usually a PBR and a shot of Jim Beam. And that price of that drink has been creeping up already from $3 to $3.50 to $4.00. And I talked to Jack Prince, who's owned the bar for 25 years, and he doesn't know what he's going to price it if and when the bar opens. He doesn't know how he's going to be able to make you know, his bottom line work and still offer the affordable drinks that people know the bar for. And you speak about it throughout the article, how dive bars have had to update themselves, renovate to attract more people, but they also want to cater to the locals, the people in their community that really prop up that business. And this is why I love... You know, my own local dive bar is the same thing. You like to be a regular somewhere. You like to go and socialize and, and know the people there. And as Prince said, it, it would suck if that were to go away. This is really typified by uh, the living room right here in Los Angeles. And that Susan, the bar owner there, was talking about how she does cater to a couple different crowds. You know, during the daytime, she gets her regulars. And at night, you know, it's a more diverse, gentrified crowd, basically. And those daytime regulars are older folks. Because of the community, you know, they're older black folks. They're people that go way back with her, who show up for her. They're her friends. And they're worried. They're maybe not coming back. As much as they want to support, uh, you know, a friendly business, they're just not going to come out. Nick Mancall Battelle, reporter at Eater. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.